0: Well, good morning, everyone. It's so good to see you all. Well, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you this morning as your people. Uh, and I pray, Father, that our hearts are uh, filled with joy to be here this morning, to gather together and to hear your word and to worship you on the best of all days, your day. We ask that you would be present with us, and that your spirit would uh, accompany the going forth of your word this morning, both in the, the Sunday school hour and during the sermon later on. Uh, we pray that we would be able to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray that you'd guide us as we study a, uh, a difficult subject this morning, and I pray that you would help us to uh, grow in our, our understanding of what's uh, behind copies of scripture that we hold in our hands. Pray that you guide us and bless this time. we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Psalm 119, of course, the longest psalm in the book of Psalms, but a psalm that is uh, all about. The Word of God. And we could read the entire chapter, which would take a significant period of time, even though it would be a time well spent. But this morning, I want to look at one of the uh, sections, verse 9 through verse 16. So Psalm 119, beginning in verse 9. <clears throat> How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have told of all the ordinances of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes, I shall not forget your word." We have here a prayer by the psalmist concerning his love for, delight in, and the keeping of the Word of God. My hope is that this, this prayer is true of you, that you desire not only to know the Word of God, but to treasure it. And the question before us this morning as we enter into the the topic of textual criticism, do we have the original inspired words that we can treasure and obey and keep? And that question this morning, we're going to begin looking at this subject of textual criticism and continuing on into perhaps two more weeks. Uh, And we want to, in looking at all that we have, Uh, talked about before uh, reach a a point where we understand how and why we have what we have before us in our copies of Scripture. And so the area of textual criticism uh, is very important. Um, It is a field that obviously has been perverted by secular liberal scholars uh, to discount and tear apart uh, the reliability of Scripture and the preservation of it, but there are really good biblical scholars who have taken this field and have used it rightly, and we're going to look at the right use of it and the wrong use of it, Um, and we're going to begin by, first of all, talking about what what is textual criticism. It's very important to define our terms, and see on the slide behind me um, that textual criticism, as defined by Paul Wagner, is the science and art that seeks to determine the most reliable, Wording of a text. Now, this is important in light of the fact: in the New Testament, we have 5,800 Greek New Testament manuscripts that all read differently from each other, based upon the uh, various different kinds of accidental human error and some intentional things that have been added in. And so, when we're looking at, say, 100 to 200 copies of the Gospel of John. How do we know which reading is original? How do we know which one's inspired? How do we know which one was originally penned by the apostle? That's an important question. Um, one of the the great uh, criticisms of the the good textual criticism that's practiced um, is that what do you do with the fact that you don't have any manuscripts that read alike? What do you do when between those fifty eight hundred manuscripts there are, no fewer than 200,000 differences, perhaps as high as 400,000. How do you reconcile that? Liberal scholars, perhaps the the biggest name in in this field on the liberal side attacking um, the uh, accuracy of Scripture is Bart Ehrman. Some of you may be familiar with his name, others not. Um, He... uh, claimed to be a Christian and then apostatized, um, which we know in light of that, that he he wasn't a genuine believer to begin with. Uh, And he teaches um, that in light of the 200,000 to potentially as high as 400,000 differences that we have, that the Bible is not reliable, we can't trust it. And yet on the other side, the biblical scholars uh, who in light of the very large number of differences still believe that the word of God is um, trustworthy and reliable and has been um, miraculously preserved. Uh, How do you reconcile both of those things? Well, we're going to do that this morning. So we have 5,800 Greek manuscripts. Liberal scholars say, well, that's not enough. You you, you don't have the original autographs. Well, the problem is that from most of the works of antiquity, we don't have the original autographs either of those works, like the Roman histories that have been written by Tacitus and many others. We don't have the original autographs. In fact, we have much, much fewer manuscripts of, of those to even use to determine the original. Here's a chart that kind of shows you a comparison. So the, the Iliad by Homer, one of his two great works written in 800 B.C., and the earliest copy we have is 400 B.C., so 400 years from the original, and we only have 643 copies of that compared to the New Testament. 5,800 copies dating as early as within 50 to 75 years of the original. And then the, the histories by Herodotus, 400 B.C. it was authored. We don't have a copy of it until 900 A.D., And then Thucydides, very similar. Plato, again the same. And then the Gallup Wars by Julius Caesar, again very similar. And look at the total number of manuscripts that have survived. The problem with the the liberal scholar assertion that we don't have enough manuscripts and we don't have the autographs falls apart in light of this evidence. None of these other works are challenged or questioned like the scriptures are. And yet we have multiple, multiple hundreds of times more manuscripts available, which is really important. Because we have so many, we're going to have more differences, right? But we also have more evidence that can help us determine what the original reading was. There are Greek and Roman scholars today that wish that they had the manuscript evidence that the New Testament bears. And this is really important, and I wanted you guys to see the comparison. The level that Scripture is attacked and sought to just undermine it based upon the manuscript evidence um, in comparison to these other works from antiquity uh, and the the lack of attacks upon the reliability of those manuscripts show that there's a bias in these liberal scholars. They do not like the Word of God, and they're going to do whatever they can to undermine it and to uh, usurp, in their minds, the trustworthiness of Scripture. I'm just going to briefly touch a little bit on the Old Testament textual criticism. It's a a fascinating field. I don't know as much about this field as uh, the New Testament, but before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest copies of the Old Testament we have were found in the Greek Septuagint. We didn't have anything Hebrew until um, the Masoretic texts, which date um, the earliest copies we have is the the 10th century. Um, And so the Dead Sea Scrolls were a a huge find, um, going back uh, at least a thousand years earlier, closer to the original manuscripts. And then we have some some other manuscript evidence. We have a, a, a Syriac translation, a Latin translation, which is the Vulgate, and then we have um, Samaritan Pentateuch, uh, and then Targum, just a variety of different uh, kinds of manuscripts, and you see different languages, and these are all parts of the puzzle in trying to determine the original reading in the Old Testament, um, but the Dead Sea Scrolls were incredibly significant, um, much older, and a, an unbelievable wealth of manuscripts. Uh, and so, uh, the Old Testament criticism, uh, textual criticism is an interesting field, but just to touch a little bit on it, that, that this is its own field. It has its own documents and manuscripts and its own issues. Um, which is more reliable, the, the Hebrew or the Greek uh, translations? Um, but it's interesting, just to, to let you know that the, these things are um, issues that people are working on. So, moving on to the New Testament. New Testament textual criticism is what we're going to spend our time on because it is what's being attacked most today, and it's the New Testament. Um, we need to know that the testimony of the New Testament, the New Covenant, is reliable and trustworthy. Um, couple uh, things by way of introduction. Um, there are different types of manuscripts based upon the writing. You see two examples here. So there are two kinds. There's the unicle and then the minuscule. The unical are the all capital letters, no spaces for words, no punctuation, which um, it can be very easy to, to see how, um, how easy it was to make mistakes because everything is crammed together. And that particular style of writing was common in the early church, up until around the ninth century, until the minuscule text, which is what you see on the right, uh, began to emerge and eventually became uh, the dominant uh, type. Um, The minuscule introduced um, some wonderful things, separation of words, capitalization of proper nouns, and uh, the beginning of sentences, And all other words were lowercase. Um, We see punctuation emerging, and um, it it made it so much easier to be more accurate in the copying uh, of these manuscripts. Um, The unicul on the left is uh, from a codex dating to the 5th to 6th century. And you can see the text is just very clear and easy to read, and it's it's beautiful. Um, And then on the right, uh, there's the minuscule dating from the 10th century. Um, Very different script. So is
1: it safe
0: to say that commas are not inspired at all? Um, Well, you get back to in the Hebrew, like, they didn't have vowels, their vowels inspired. Uh, The answer is, obviously, in the Hebrew, the vowels were implied, but here, the punctuation um, uh, is not inspired. You'll see uh, periods and and stuff and commas and, and just essential English grammar in our Bibles, and it's implied by reading the text. Uh, as I've been preaching through Ephesians 1, we've seen multiple places where they put the period in the wrong spot. They've, um, and, and obviously, the, um, the, the verse divisions uh, are significantly later. Uh, I think it's um, 11th to 12th century, somewhere in there, um, perhaps a little bit later. Um, so for the significant majority of, of church history, like, they didn't have verse divisions. Um, and the punctuation was uh, added in significantly later. So it's interesting um, and should make us read our Bibles recognizing that the grammar that's in there is not inspired and that perhaps um, there may be some errors and mistakes made. Uh, I think Ephesians 1 is an example of that.
1: So if they're not in the original.
0: Yeah, so the Greek grammar um, and how it's structured is very obvious um, because the parts of speech will have, um, I don't want to get too deep into what the Hebrew and even the Greek does. It's very clear what part of speech is connected to what noun and what verb. There's uh, similarity in the structure and, and all of that. I don't want to go any deeper than that, but it's, it's, it's clear um, to modern scholars um, where the, the breaks are. Um, example, like Ephesians, you know, the guy who was putting together verse divisions and the punctuation uh, was doing it um, several hundred years ago. And we have, between that time, even from the time of the King James Version to now, um, we have uh, discovered rules for Greek grammar that those people didn't know. Uh, one of the important ones is the Granville Sharp rule. So as um, scholarly study continues, they're finding more and more information on how to accurately translate um, and reflect what the original writers were intending. Um, But but it's not a perfect science because, you know, the scholars are not inspired in their decision-making, their weighing, and and the same is true in the field of textual criticism, which we'll see. Um, It's not a perfect exact science. You're, You're weighing manuscripts against each other Um, And there's often an incredible wealth of testimony on both sides, and we'll we'll talk more about that. Um, So we have Unical, all capital letters, no uh, space for words or punctuation. Then we have the minuscules, And next we arrive at another important subject, text types. Um, And this, more than anything, describes where these manuscripts have come from Um, Because the different regions, um, you're more apt to copy a manuscript that's close to you than going far away to copy, right? And so you'll see unique things that appear um, through copying errors or uh, intentional additions to um, the text in these varying areas. And uh, textual criticism scholars have um, divided the manuscripts that are available to us into um, these categories you see here. So we have Alexandrian, Egyptian, eclectic, Western, and Byzantine. So Alexandrian uh, comes from the area of North Africa. You can see down there Egypt, the uh, city of Alexandria. And this is a picture of what the Roman Empire looked, um, about 117. And the original um, province names are, are given for you, so it's kind of interesting to see that. But so the Alexandrian manuscripts came from the area of Northern Egypt and that region of Northern Africa. Then the Egyptian manuscripts come from Southern Egypt. Um, The eclectic manuscripts are manuscripts that uh, don't fall into any of the other categories. They have unique things and unique characteristics. The Western manuscripts are mostly found in Italy uh, and the areas today modern uh, France and Spain and then the Western part of North Africa. Uh, And these manuscripts in uh, the Greek are very early because we know that the Western Roman Empire collapsed uh, at the end of the fifth century. And then we have the Byzantine manuscripts, which are the area of Greece and Turkey uh, and all of that area there. And because Byzantine is the Eastern Roman Empire, we're gonna have more of those because that empire lasted a thousand years longer um, and was still using Greek, whereas most of the rest of the the known world at that time had transitioned to Latin. Um, So these text types, these groups are very important. Um, I'll talk more about it um, later, but the Byzantine tradition is what is behind the Textus Receptus that came through Erasmus and others and formulated the King James Version and and that sort. Um, The Byzantine tradition is the majority because that tradition lasted longer than all the others, but it's later, and we're going to look at some charts that I want you to see the the different groups and where we have the earliest manuscripts but the earliest manuscripts that we have closest to the autographs are from the alexandrian tradition northern africa um, the egyptian we have kind of a scattering and the eclectic again is a category that doesn't um, really fit into any of the others and it's kind of a a, a varying spectrum of when those manuscripts um, are dated so here's the first chart you see those categories and you'll see immediately that the Alexandrian manuscripts are the ones that are earliest and a significant majority of them. So the New Testament was likely finished um, with the book of Revelation probably about eighty ninety. 90 Yes? When you say manuscripts, um, are you talking about like fragments of pieces of one page or are we talking about entire... It's a great question. So... The word manuscript is implying um, any piece of that original manuscript that um, has survived. And in in some cases, it's fragments. Other cases, it's um, near complete uh, copies. um, And and it it just really varies. And of course, the older you get, um, you're going to be fragmentary. Most of these early Alexandrian copies are fragmentary. Um, There are several that are, not fragmentary um, where they have pages upon pages upon pages. Um, But so the Alexandrian manuscripts are the the earliest testimony to the New Testament. Um, And they're continuing to find more and more of these manuscripts. Um, And I I have no doubt that they're gonna continue to be adding more to that list. So the Egyptian is significantly later, the earliest manuscripts we have uh, date to about 350. What's interesting as part of the Egyptian um, tradition is that um, Greek as a language was supplanted over time by Coptic, which is very similar to Greek, but not Greek, Um, it has additional letters. It's an interesting language, but just like in Western Europe, Latin supplanted Greek over time. The same thing happened in Egypt. Um, But we still have a a decent amount of um, manuscript evidence from before uh, 650, and same is true of the eclectic. We have again that's that category of of kind of uh, a mixture uh, of manuscripts that don't really fall into any of the other categories. Um, the Western we see just a, a handful here and there. Uh, and remember that by 500, the Western Roman Empire had completely collapsed. Um, And also remember around that time Jerome had completed his Translation into the Latin The Latin Vulgate and that that Bible Became the standard for the western uh, uh, Western Europe and so the Greek Manuscripts died out and the knowledge of them Died out and so we clearly see that The Byzantine tradition We don't have any manuscripts Until as you see 450 and we have a a Handful that that, uh, enter in As well and so you immediately see that the Byzantine manuscript tradition, which is the foundation for the Textus Receptus, doesn't have any early manuscript attestation at all. We don't have any. In fact, remember that the Textus Receptus doesn't use any manuscripts that are earlier than the 12th century. So it's not taking into account any of these. And this is the the second half of that chart going up to 1250. None of the manuscripts that you see until the bottom two lines in any way were used in the Textus Receptus. The Alexandrian manuscripts die out, of course. The Egyptian are very few. Again, Coptic is the language of that day and time. We see a lot in the eclectic category um, as uh, the Middle Ages were progressing. Um, There were still places that were copying Greek manuscripts, um, but they were generally far and few in between, and yet we still see a a very healthy representation, even when compared to the Byzantines. And of course, the Western has died out completely. And so, again, 1200, that's the earliest year for any of those Byzantine manuscripts that were used as part of the Texas Receptus. And I think this really helps to see the vast majority of manuscripts that aren't even used in the Texas Receptus that have no influence upon um, the question: what was original? We know that the closer you are to the original, the most likely you're going to have fewer errors, fewer human mistakes. Um, the Byzantine tradition uh, is also known for adding things to the text. We'll talk more about this in a moment. Um, they particularly like to do things like harmonization, where they made um One passage in the gospel read like another passage in the gospel reads. Um, And what's important is that none of the other manuscript traditions bear witness to that. And those harmonizations are later. The Byzantines were known to expand, to add, to change. Um, But what's important is we have other manuscript trees that were not influenced by the Byzantine copying. And because we have those other manuscript trees and those other manuscripts that testify to what was in the, the text at that time, um, we can know what is original and what was added. And we'll talk more about that as, um, hopefully next week, we'll be able to look at the rules behind um, the pro- the practice of textual criticism. When you reach a place where there's differences in manuscripts, how do you know what? They're... We'll look at those rules.
2: Yes? Did you talk about how the KJV has several editions. Mm-hmm. And
0: Still using the Textus Receptus, which is again not using any manuscripts older than that. Um, yes, Josh.
1: My question is: is uh, do we have a standard for like the oldest and most complete manuscripts, or do we just combine them all together? I don't know that works.
0: So we'll we'll talk more about this when we kind of get to the rules behind textual criticism. Um, but every manuscript is getting given a certain weight depending upon the text tradition that's coming through and the age of it and even the condition of it. Um, and ones that are complete copies are, are certainly very helpful. You know, you go back to the, the Codex Vaticanus and then Sinaiticus and those are uh, fourth century complete copies. And those bear an incredible amount of weight um, in light of just, they are Alexandrian manuscripts. They are the earliest complete that we have. And that other early manuscripts um, fragments and stuff Bear witness to the accuracy um, that's in um, those other codexes. And so, it, it, again, it's not an exact science. You're weighing manuscripts. Um, the older ones will have more weight to them, generally, than ones that are much, much later. Because, again, the closer you are to the original, the more accurate you are. Say you have a manuscript that's only five copies away from the autograph compared to one that's 200 copies away. 200 different people copying, 200 different people's um, silly human mistakes in copying. And we're going to look at the different kinds of mistakes that that were made. But obviously, the one that's closest has uh, a significant chance to be much more accurate. And when you have several early manuscripts that have um, incredible similarity, um, you know you're on the right track. Um, And we'll talk more uh, about that here soon. So here, this chart takes all of those numbers in that chart that I showed you and puts it in a a visual form. Um, So you see that the Byzantine is what's known as the majority text. More manuscripts in the Byzantine tradition, and most of those manuscripts read very similarly. But you see that the Alexandrian is very clearly um, the earliest and has a significant testimony. Uh, much closer to the originals. So this, it, it, this really helps to visualize um, the manuscripts that we have uh, with us today. So the Dead Sea scrolls contained Old Testament manuscripts uh, all of these manuscripts are um, here today through other means. Um, Oftentimes they've been preserved in monasteries, sometimes they just turn up. Um, One of the um, most significant um, um, sources, um, there's a trash dump in Egypt, Um, the name of it is escaping me, Um, that back in the early 20th century, they began to excavate, Uh, and it's in the desert, and literally there were parchments literally sitting on the surface. Um, And they've collected um, the majority of what's in there, um, and they've gone through some of it, but about 99% of it they haven't gone through, and it's sitting in the basement of the British Museum. Um, And scholars are just waiting for it to be sorted through. Um, it, it, It will not be something that's completed in our lifetime, but we know there are manuscripts from the New Testament in there, perhaps some that are earlier. We just don't know. And so it's waiting for them to be gone through, and, and it feels like every couple of years they're publishing new manuscripts, so it's exciting. Um, but that, that trash dump, um, the name of it is um, escaping me, but uh, it has been an incredible uh, source for some of the earliest manuscripts that they're finding that are just waiting to be unearthed and examined. So, um, yeah, they come come down to us through a variety of different means, um, but the monasteries were primarily um, one of the, the great means of them being preserved. Um, which, again, is one way that God has preserved his word, kind of using a, a, a strange means of doing it. Um, any other questions?
1: Uh, Erasmus only had access to the later Byzantine manuscripts. He didn't have access to the earlier one.
0: So that question is complicated. Um, Erasmus used what was uh, closest to him, uh, but he did not go out of his way to access things um, that he could have accessed. Um, like the Codex Vaticanus, uh, he could have gone to Rome where it was being housed and could have looked at it. He actually had a friend go look at passages for him um, that he wrote by letter, um, but he didn't even use um, the readings in the Codex Vaticanus in um, in his Textus Receptus. And so it comes down to like Erasmus, he did a lot of good scholarly work, but he did not take advantage of all that was available in his day. And those after him, Um, who were, again, issuing new editions of the Texas Receptus, they didn't utilize manuscripts outside of um, that 7 to 12 uh, manuscript copies. Um, So it it astonishes me that there was not a greater urgency to get as many manuscripts as possible to bear upon the text. Um, And so that's the great weakness of the Texas Receptus and the translations that have come from it. Uh, But today, um, we're living in a day where many have come before us and have um, taken all the manuscripts that were available during that time and weighed them together, um, and have sought to find what's original. Um, and the fact that today we can use nearly six thousand manuscripts as a puzzle to determine what was original um, is incredible compared to just the seven to twelve that were used again later manuscripts. Yeah. Yes, that's I'm it. You yep. You. Yep. Yeah. yep. Yeah, it's, it's a strange word. and It's one of those that uh, leaves my mind easily. The, the name that kept coming to my mind that I knew wasn't right was Nag Hammadi, which is where all the, the Gnostic Gospels were found, uh, which is a completely different subject, uh, also fascinating. But had yeah, Oxyrhynchus uh, in Egypt, a okay, trash dump that was used, I think, for like eight 900 years. And so my hope is that um, we see many, many more manuscripts coming out um, and, again, more evidence um, that helps us know what was original.
2: Massada is coming to mind. Is that where they had all the, the group of people that split off and
0: they they took the scrolls and hid them? Yeah, I, I wonder. Perhaps if you're thinking of the word Masada. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Masada is. Yeah, it's a it's actually a location in Israel, um, and it's a it's like a bluff, a, a big hill. Um, And during the uh, AD 70, when the Romans were coming back in after the Jews had rebelled, um, one of the groups of people that um, was uh, rebelling and armed um, went to Masada and tried to defend themselves. And the Romans did um, defeat them. But it's thought that the people who hid the Dead Sea Scrolls um, participated in what was happening at Masada because it was very, very close by. Was there
2: anything found there?
0: As far as I know, no. Um, everything had been hidden away um, in the caves um, where the dead sea scrolls uh, were found, and they're actually doing more excavation there right now. Um, new caves are, are perhaps going to find more. So the way you see. It's pretty exciting. All right, so this chart here shows in a visual way um, what the liberal scholars use to show in their minds how scripture is unreliable. And at the surface, this looks discouraging, doesn't it? So there are 138,162 words in the Greek New Testament. And if 200,000 variants exist, you could go even up as high as the 400,000 that is um, believed by some, it's it's about 1.5 errors per word. That's what they would have you believe. But this is not the whole story. Because not all errors are viable. We're going to talk about that here. So you see here a list of um, ways in which unintentional errors found their way into the text. Some big words, fancy words. I will explain to you what they mean. And you don't have to worry about all those fancy words. Um, So just simple, I'm going to go through this list. I'm going to give a couple examples of some of them. Other ones, they're pretty obvious. and then we'll, we'll look at some of the intentional errors that happened. Um, so first, mistaken letters. Um, I think you and I can do that very easily. Um, there are letters in Greek that can look very similar to each other. And when you're, you're reading a manuscript, you know, that, you know, uh, hasn't been copied well, or maybe you can't see it very well, maybe you're working in the dark by a candlelight. You can very easily <laughs> mistake one letter for another. Um, it's funny how um in in the hebrew there are some letters that look almost the same except for one letter has a rounded edge and the other has a boxed edge and so like duh it's obvious that um, an error of that kind would be just totally accidental so mistaken letters homophony um, the substitution of similar sounding words so not all copying um, that was done of manuscripts was done by one person having a manuscript in front of them and then copying it painstakingly. There was uh, a practice, especially early, uh, of dictating a manuscript to someone. One would read it and then the other would copy it by hand. Um, And we have uh, words in our English language that uh, depending upon um, the person um, and perhaps having you know, a bad understanding of grammar could very easily mistake one sounding word for another, like the word there, T H E I R, compared to the, the one with the apostrophe, like duh. And so it there are some significant examples of that with pronouns and, and stuff in the Greek, where if someone was dictating it to you and you heard a word and you didn't see the spelling of it and you went with what you thought you remembered, um it very easy to make a mistake. This was a common one, actually, and some of the um, some of the viable um, textual variants we have today have come from different manuscript trees uh, having differences between them based upon this issue, similar sounding word. Third, haphlography: the omission of a letter or word, usually due to a similar word in the context. Um, So for example, um, it's very easy to spell a a word that's very similar differently, like the word occurrence, one R versus two Rs. It's very easy for someone to just totally mistake. Another um, example of haplography is a similar ending word that appears in that context that the, the copyist is copying and sees that word and goes to copy it and then looks back and sees maybe three or four words later, a word that ends the same way, and his eyes go right back to that, and then he keeps going. He has no idea he made a mistake. Um, I would do that very easily. Um, and so it was a very common, very unintentional, accidental way that a, uh, a copyist made a silly mistake. And we see this all the time and often, um, but what's nice is we have 5,800 manuscripts, and we know when someone has made that mistake, because the other manuscripts bear witness to Um, that error being an error. Um, Fourth, ditography. It's a letter or word that has been written twice rather than once. For example, the English word ladder, spelled with two Ts versus the word later. Very easy for someone to make that mistake. Uh, Metathesis, transposing two letters in a word accidentally. The word earn for run. Nay for any. You know, I struggle with that. I I misspell words. and, And I look back at what I'm typing, I'm like, I just switched that around. And back then they were copying by hand and there was no way for them to, you know, make a correction very easily. And oftentimes they're copying quickly. And so this error would just, of course, because we have so many manuscripts, this error jumps out immediately because it's only found in one or two manuscripts. The rest don't have it. So we know that that was an unintentional mistake. Fusion, two words joined together as one when they are originally two separate words. Remember the unical manuscripts, no spaces between words or sentences? Very easy to see how that would happen. And what happens often in the Greek is the two words will have separate meanings. When you put it together, the meaning of it may change slightly. Um, And of course, it's a variant. It's an error. Fission, a word that has... Incorrectly been separated into two words when it's originally supposed to be one. It's the opposite of that error that we just talked about. And again, unical manuscripts, no spaces between words. Very easy to see how that would happen. Then next, homoiotelion and homoiarcton. It's an omission caused by two words or phrases that begin similarly. It's very similar to the uh, the haplography issue. Um, it's words that end similarly that one mistakes um, and will substitute or leave out very, very common error. But again, we have 1,500 manuscripts and we can easily tell this kind of error. Yes? Yes and no. So a manuscript that's copied and someone wants to have a copy of it themselves, they'll go to what's in front of them, and they won't know what's an error or not. And one of the important um, factors in just the area of textual criticism is you have uncontrolled copying different manuscript trees and traditions, which makes it so much easier to recognize and identify a mistake. And that is really important um, because we can, using all the evidence we have, identify these errors. Very easy to spot them uh, because uh, the manuscripts that have come down to us, we may have a couple that bear witness to that error, but they're later. We have earlier manuscripts that don't have it. We know very clearly that 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 would be an example of that error. Next, intentional spelling and grammar changes. Um, Let me move on to the intentional errors. So spelling and grammar changes. Um, Not everyone is the best speller in the world, right? Um, I was a pretty good speller growing up. Um, In spelling class, my mom struggled to find words for me to spell that I didn't know how to spell. But that's not true of everyone. All of us have certain words that we misspell all the time, right? And when we're copying, um, say, a copy is back in the... Early days um, would come across a word that he thought was misspelled in the manuscript, and so he would correct it because he thinks it's spelled wrong. He doesn't have a dictionary to turn to. He has no one to come behind him and tell him, well, you made a mistake. How often do we intentionally or even unintentionally misspell words in our writing? All the time. And again, these are very easy to spot and don't change the meaning of the text. Intentional harmonization. This is what I was talking about with particularly the Byzantine manuscripts and later ones. Um, They would try to take um, one gospel account and another one where something similar is said in a parallel account. And they would change one to read like the other. Because, well, that must be right. That's what Jesus said. It doesn't say that there. So we should make them to be the same. Um, And similar things would happen in similar statements by the Apostle Paul between his epistles. Um, And again, this is found primarily in the Byzantine tradition and we have many, many manuscripts that are much earlier and don't bear witness to that. And it's obvious that this is, those would be cases of people harmonizing. Um, And this is actually a very, very common uh, issue. Um, One of the common changes that would be made in the area of harmonization is if one gospel said, the Lord Jesus in a place, and then the parallel passage in another gospel said the Lord Jesus Christ, well, then the first one must have just left off part of the name, so they would add it. It doesn't really change the meaning of the text, but because we have all these other manuscripts that don't bear witness to that, that are hundreds of years earlier, we know that that would be an example of harmonization. Um, Intentional euphemistic changes. Um, This is a very easy one to spot. Um, Someone would be copying along, and they would come across a word that perhaps they thought was offensive, um, that they didn't like, and they would just change it to one that's maybe not quite as on edge. Um, And again, this is a very common thing in the Byzantine tradition. Um, Not as common as some of the other intentional um, errors that I've mentioned, but it happens. But again, none of the early manuscripts bear witness to that and say it appears, you know, in a 12th century manuscript in the Byzantine tradition, and you have 50 other manuscripts older and earlier that don't bear witness to it, it's like, of course, it's not original. It's a change that's been made. Intentional theological changes. Copies would sometimes change words or phrases that they perceived um, that perhaps someone was presented in a bad light, um, or in a way that that copyist didn't really like. Again, super easy to spot because None of the early manuscripts bear witness to that. Um, So it's obviously a later addition and change. Again, this happened often in the Byzantine text tradition. Um, Lastly, intentional additions or glosses. Um, And we see this in particularly the Byzantine tradition as well. Sometimes in some early manuscripts, um, a copyist would be copying something, come across something that um, was a cultural thing in um, Jewish culture that they knew, but they knew that most readers wouldn't be aware of, they would add a footnote in the, the margin of the text. Um, and then a the later copyist is coming along and they reach that spot and they're like, what is this? Is this original? I don't know, well, I better put it in. I don't wanna leave it out. They would add it in. Um, there are some examples uh, of that in the Byzantine tradition and there are a few examples of that that have come down to us through the Texas Receptus and the King James Version Uh, which we will look at in a week or so when we begin looking at um, some of the very common uh, textual variants that appear. So, these are the um, intentional errors. We've looked at the unintentional errors. Um, What's really important, again, is we have so much evidence that can, in most cases, clearly show what was original and what was not. Out of the 200,000 uh, variants um, or changes that we see between the 5,800 uh, manuscripts, when you begin taking out all of the just silly mistakes that we talked about, the unintentional stuff that is very obvious, you get down to just a couple thousand that are viable. Yes, Mike?
2: Is there a difference between uh, water and water and water?
0: Um, no, not really. Um, maybe just different types of additions. Um, sometimes someone would just insert a a comment in parentheses in the, in the text, a gloss. Sometimes it's just a footnote that was eventually copied in and added in. So just very similar. Yeah. So, again, we have an incredible amount of evidence that functions as a witness um, in light of these various mistakes, and when you take out all of the the silly mistakes, someone just omitting a word, someone misspelling something, um, all of the very obvious issues, um, you're down to just a couple thousand that are actually viable. And then when you begin digging into that, uh, into ones that are um, viable to the extent of uh, being a textual variant, that's even worth considering and weighing evidence for, um, you're just down to um, just several hundred. Um, So the true story is um, that in light of all of the mistakes and the unintentional, even some of the intentional errors that have prepped in, um, there aren't that many errors, issues, variants um, that scholars recognize as even being worth weighing evidence for. Um, And that should give us confidence in um, the Scriptures. And next week, Um, I'll bring some of those numbers so that you guys can can see and look um, and and see that what the liberal scholars are trying to convince people of is not the whole story. It's not the truth. Um, The fact that we have so much evidence um, gives such uh, ability to weigh and determine, uh, and even recognizing just those very common errors, um, whether they be intentional or unintentional. Um, So... In any event, um, just a couple thousand that are viable, and just a few hundred that are ones that are actually more challenging and more difficult um, to deal with. And yet, even out of that, um, many of those are once you start weighing um, the manuscripts and the evidence, the original reading is pretty obvious. Um, yes, Josh.
1: So what you're saying is, even though the liberal scholars would say there's two hundred thousand. That doesn't
0: change the the central themes and message of what each manuscript is saying. Correct. Yeah. Um, When it comes down to in a reading, is it the Lord Jesus here or just Jesus? It does not in any way change the meaning of what the writer is trying to communicate. Um, And there are, of course, some variants that are more difficult than others, and we're going to look at some. But the majority of the ones we're going to look at, it's very clear. When you don't have any manuscript um, bearing witness to it before the 10th century, and you have evidence for it afterwards, only in the Byzantine tradition, you can be pretty confident um, that whatever that issue is, is is not original. Um, So textual criticism, again, it takes all the manuscripts, it weighs them based upon when they were copied, the tradition that they're in, the known errors that are common to different text types, weighs them, um, and in most cases it's very easy to see what was original. Um, which is why there's so many, um, I wouldn't say many, but some passages um, in the New Testament that you'll see in footnotes saying most early manuscripts don't have this. Uh, We looked at some of those, um, John 5, 4, and we're going to look at uh, most of those um, specifically and looking at the uh, manuscript evidence for both sides of it so you guys can see why um, the modern scholars are persuaded to think one direction. Um, we'll look at several of those. We're not going to look at all of them because we'd be here for a while. Um, and I don't want to try your patience. But I want to educate you enough to where you, you have a working understanding of how textual criticism is used, why it's important, um, so that you have confidence in the copy of scripture that you, you have in Hawaii. there's no big at the end of this? No, absolutely. Only if you want it. I, I am willing to consider that if many people vote for that. <laughs> <laughs> I was well, gonna tell
1: her not you. Yeah. <laughs> I was gonna see if Sarah would forward the questions. But <laughs> <laughs> Before the questions to you ahead of time. Yeah. Oh, okay. Sure.
0: Yeah. Well, she, back. she has she access says. to all of that, so she could probably <laughs> do that. It is totally supported by forever, O oh Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Mm.
2: Isn't that isn't that what the, the basic bottom line of it is? Mm-hmm. It's settled in heaven.
0: Yes. So, recognizing that God has preserved his word, but seeking to recognize how God has preserved his word outside of um, what some people in the the King James-only controversy um, claim that God has preserved his His word this way, and yet God has preserved his word in, in in my eyes, just an interesting way. Um, Copies of copies uncontrolled over hundreds of years um, and has given us so many manuscripts to work with. And that today, um, biblical scholars have great confidence in the copies of scripture that we have. Um, and that the, the critical editions that are coming out every decade or so, it's only just a couple handful of changes um, that are coming out as new manuscripts are discovered and they're weighing additional evidence. Um, but uh, we have great confidence. Yes. The next one? I have a question, but I didn't want to even address that. Yes.
2: in America probably was first Bible and English and all of mm-hmm. that. So when they say or uh, when we hear statements like these can't rely on that, it's been changed and all that, mm-hmm. they're not gonna go into te- text because they have no clue yeah. about yeah. any of this. Yeah. So what do we as Christians, how do we and all the errors that could have been made and how those errors were made. Sure. So um what, Because what they're saying, or even not necessarily Christians, non-Christians, you can't rely on the Bible because it changed and all of that and all mm-hmm. over the years. So what
0: Yeah, uh, I think there are a couple different things in, in what you're asking. Um, I would say, first of all, to someone who's doubting the reliability of Scripture, say, as a non-believer, you right. can say to them, the New Testament is the, um, has the most attestation of any work from antiquity by a large margin. We have more evidence, more manuscripts, and it's more reliable than any of those other works that are not even questioned. Um, yeah.
2: and, and, and that's true. But I guess what I think is kind of like, I guess, a follow up of what Josh, the, the question Josh asked. Billy Adams and all of these uh, uh, individuals here whose work may be older and all of that. We don't rely on this for our soul salvation. The way he died, and all of these things have actually taken place, and he prophesied certainly thousand years almost before the birth of Christ. So these these things have been validated. Now I don't know, you know, and and these these works which may be which are wonderful works, many of them, but this is not something we plays out so long. I guess right. that's what I'm trying to. That's what I. People, when they talk to me like that, that I don't place my soul in all of this literature. I like Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. I don't place my soul in Shakespeare. Right. And I, you know, many of his works are good, but that's not where I place my soul. What God said He was going to do, He has done, and I know He has done in my heart. I can testify to that. I know that change has taken place in my own life. In my own life. And Destructive and the word of God has changed their life. So, I mean, I guess that's the bottom line. The Bible works and all of this other stuff, but you know, it's, it's good stuff, very very informative and good writing and all of that. But we
0: don't place our life on that. You're 100% correct. Um, I think one of the great mistakes that people make is that they find their confidence in the scripture based on all of these things. And yet, scripture itself presupposes its accuracy. It never, ever stops to spend one verse on proving that it is the word of God. It's self-attestation. said it all. Scripture to itself. Yes, and that should be enough. Yeah.
2: is asking them the question, like, how do I know that this Bible is the truth? How do I know that this, our religion is the truth? Right. The true word. Like how do I know that? In, in my soul, how do I know that? So, I mean, you know, you just,
0: Those are yeah. big questions for a yeah. young child. Yeah. Um, yeah. Questions that adults.
2: We wrote it down saying. and we were like, and no, what? Say that again? <laughs>
0: and and we called her out in here and Dr. Josh was like, you need to talk to Alan. <laughs> <laughs> a so that's a great question. I like
1: all these other things that we're saying citing yes. to yeah. are established as true. Well, and then yes. he's like, well, the catechism tells me that. Well, then, yeah. believe that. Yeah. Right. You know, we do the catechism. Believe
0: that. Yeah. That's all true. Yep. Yeah. You know, we, we don't have faith in the things of God because they've been proven true to us based upon evidence. We shouldn't need any of the things that I've presented to you. Leave right. the word of God as accurate because the word of God itself testifies to the fact that it is. It's pure eternal. It's never fading. Right. It never has. It's always time and time again been proven true. Not that those external evidences have any higher authority than Scripture, but they're coming in and saying Scripture says this. This is our highest authority, and we're seeing it, it born out in the world around us. And that's, that's the big hurdle and what a, a question and something for a young child to be asking themselves. And as a parent, you know, you're excited that they're asking those questions. They're wrestling with them and what a, a joy that is and all the while trying to point them in the right direction and try to guide them towards um, what they have to make up uh, for their, their own minds. Do I trust this? Do I have confidence in this? Yeah. Josh and then we'll be done.
1: I think, uh Studying these things, too, is is good for our faith, but it's also good to defend the Word of God, you know, because there are plenty of traditions out there which would call themselves Christians, which deny the reliability of the New Testament like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. And so when we study these things, they'll they'll say, you know, I have this inward attestation of the Holy Spirit, and then we have to both go back to the Word of God and say, hey, here's what... These manuscripts say, and here's what yours say, yeah. um, and it allows us as you know good churchmen to say, "Whoa, you guys are yep. wrong," you yep. know, and we're grateful to have this this yeah. history and the mm-hmm. science to back us up. So, you know, texture yeah. criticism is a tool. It's yes. not the basis of our faith, yes, it's faith, but it is a tool. Yeah.
0: Yes, it's a means of being able to give an answer to those who are wrestling with these issues, um, trying to evangelize a Muslim today. Um, and people in other, like Mormonism and Jehovah Witness, um, they're aware of these things. Muslims are keenly aware of this. And the reliability of Scripture is one of the great arguments. Um, not saying that you and I are going to encounter a, a Muslim or one from the, the, those other cults on a daily basis, but um, we need to be ready to give an answer to those who would challenge and question um, the foundation of um, what we believe with the scriptures. And, and again, um, this is uh, supporting evidence. We're not evidentialists. We're presuppositionalists. We believe the word of God because it says it. But there are people that wrestle with these issues um, and you need at least understand enough of it to be able to answer their questions and then point them to what the word of God says about itself. You can trust the word of God because God said, this is my word and it's a reflection of who I am.